And so the funny thing is, like, when I'm in the back of the ambulance, what I thought was, well, I think this is going to take me off the flying schedule for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the schedulers are going to be mad at me. (laughs) Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to 2022. Some of us might not have gotten exactly what we hoped for out of last year, but life doesn't always hand us precisely what we expect. That is certainly the case for today's guest. Supa may be a mountain bike show, but every now and then there's a story worth telling, even if it doesn't involve fun on two wheels. For those of us who spend every free moment running around playing outdoors, the thought of losing a limb might sound like a fate worse than death. For Air Force Major Christy Kinsey, an unthinkable disaster has been a route to discovering that life, work, and sports on the other side of catastrophic injury have more to offer than many of us would think possible. Welcome, everyone, to Stand Up Pedal Action. Here in studio today, what a joy. (laughs) We have Major Christy Clockwise Kinsey. Yeah. A lot of names in there. Did I get that it good? Great. Yeah. You okay. crushed it. Yes. <laughs> yes. How's that sound? Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, so you are uh, an Air Force Academy grad. Correct. Who flies all sorts of cool planes, landed with the HC 130. <laughs> landed. Let's see what, see what happened there. Yeah. That's good. Josh oh. is on point tonight. Oh. Yeah. Here we go. This you want to do the show? You, can. <laughs> uh, you are an adventure enthusiast. Yes. And you have. Uh, been into athletics for most of your life it sounds like however more recently over the past six years you've taken a different spin on things that uh has really uh, brought some richness to yeah, new challenges uh, i would say yeah. I, yes maybe new some challenges. richness yeah challenges <laughs> okay we'll go with that all right <laughs> all right um i think jason described this where most people have Garages full of boxes or maybe toys, bikes, bikes. I was told that you have a garage full of legs. I do. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Prosthetic legs for sure. Yep. We're going to leave that as a little (laughs) teaser until a minute down the road here. Okay. When we get back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I still have other toys too and and sporting gear and in addition to the legs. In addition. Okay. Still have all the other stuff too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I could digress here, but thank you for being with us. We are really excited to have you here in the studio. Um, you're also a neighbor, which is awesome. It is awesome. Our neighborhood yeah. is pretty cool in case people haven't gathered that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're loving it. We are. <laughs> and we'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory and just kind of a, a brief jump through of where you grew up and what... Uh, what growing up was like. You got it. Yeah. So I'm from um, Reno, Nevada originally. Um, really close to Lake Tahoe. Every time I say Reno, people always imagine Vegas. But right. uh, Reno is actually very similar to Colorado Springs. So it's awesome being back here. Four seasons, snow. But with gambling. Oh, with gambling. You're right. right you're right. Yeah. You're right. It's funny. <laughs> you grew up with that. You just don't even... It's, it's not weird. You know, people are in the slot machines and the gas stations. You know, you just don't think twice of it. That's how right. it is. Yep. So yeah, so Reno, Nevada. Um, 
I have two siblings, a twin sister and a younger brother. And then both my parents were really into skiing. So my mom grew up in a little ski area in Oregon. Her family actually owned a ski area. And then my dad went to college for ski racing. So we sort of had skiing on both sides for my parents. And so our whole family skied and we all still ski, which is awesome. So um, that's actually how I got into the military and flying was through skiing. So I got recruited. Okay. Yeah. How (laughs) does that happen? Very unusual. (laughs) Yeah. So I got recruited for the Air Force Academy ski team. Oh, okay. And so I always wanted to ski in college. Um, My sister did as well. We're twins. So we were going to college at the same time. Not both at the Air Force Academy. Not both at the Air Force Academy. But it was one of those things where, you know, I was... It's funny because I was an average athlete, I would say, when I had two legs. Now I'm a much better athlete with one leg. <laughs> Competition pool is a lot smaller. So yeah. <laughs> that's just the reality. I was going to say, I don't know that I believe. I'm going to call shenanigans on that. Yeah. Average athletes okay. don't end up at the Air Force Academy on a sports scholarship. Yeah. Well, they, they or just... Or a sports... Don't get recruited to the Air Force Academy for a sport. Well, that is somewhat true, but... They also struggle with recruiting athletes because anyone that goes there is signing on for military service. True. So it comes with strings attached. And so a lot of the really good high school athletes don't want to sign on to those strings. Yeah, but I used to play against some of the guys who are on the basketball team and occasionally good. in pickup games, and I got destroyed okay. all the time. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad to hear. Not that you got destroyed, but yeah, that okay, we had thanks. basketball yeah. athletes. <laughs> yes, you had guys I know. Yeah, so I got recruited for the Air Force Academy for their ski team. Um, which I was excited about. I thought it was, a. Uh, I kind of, I did my homework. So I, mm-hmm. sometimes athletes go there and then they show up at basic training and get yelled at and have to do pushups and it's a huge shock, but yeah. no, I did my research. I knew what I was signing up for. And, and is there a military background in your family? No. Oh, wow. Okay. So you had to do the research. It wasn't like you knew what you're walking into. Yeah. My uncle, my, my uncle's was, uh, in the band in the Navy, but it was kind of funny because the whole family would always joke with him, like, are you really in the Navy or in the band? So and <laughs> please he was tell like, me he was playing something fun like the sousaphone. Um, the drums. Oh, okay. He's okay. so cool. Yeah. He's like in rock <laughs> bands. And then we're like, you're in the Navy. So <laughs> he was my only military experience was him. All right. So yeah, so I went to the Air Force Academy for skiing, loved it. Um, and then once I was there, realized I thought flying would be pretty cool. And so graduated, commissioned and went to pilot training. So that's pretty much the quick background. Wow. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was that was down and dirty. So were were you and now your brother both, and it sounds like your sister as well, were all three of you in competition as you were growing up? Yes. So we all three, we raced. We all started out racing, my sister and I. And then my sister also raced in college. Mm-hmm. So she got a scholarship as well at College of Idaho. So it was really cool. We both went to separate schools, but we were actually still in the same region so we'd ski against each other every year at regionals, which was oh, really man, fun. Oh, man, that's fun. Oh, fun. And then my brother... Did that uh, Did that often go one way or another? Yeah, it was kind of unfortunate for her because she was always better at speed events, and they don't have those in college, and I was better at technical events, and so I usually won in the college, uh. in the college <laughs> competitions. But I mm. would always say, like, hey, if there was downhill here, we know, hands down, you're better than me at downhill, so... <laughs> And then my younger brother, he's three years younger, ended up being the best skier out of the three of us. But my sister and I brag that it's because he kept up with us. So all those years. Yeah, of course. Naturally. Yeah, they're older. We were three years older. And so, and we didn't make it easy on him. So he was always keeping up with us. And so I think he's, you know, I'll take some credit. There we go. Now he's a professional skier. 
It's. <laughs> it sounds like you all had a lot of fun growing up. I think so. Yeah. Is yeah. there a bit of sibling rivalry competition going on there? Oh yeah, yeah. I think actually, as far as athletic wise, being a twin is amazing because you have somebody who's so close, so similar to you, has all the same training, and so you're always competing. So if Jessica could do a lift that I couldn't do, I'd be like, ah, I'm so mad. Or like, if I was faster than her at something. And so you're always pushing each other, which is really cool. But then also just, you know, going through it together, doing hard workouts together, supporting each other. And so that was really cool. And then with David, you know, having twin older sisters, of course, he was put in the middle a lot. And whenever we got in fights and stuff, we'd make him pick his favorite. And <laughs> I like both of you. We're like, no, you can't. You have to pick one. <laughs> so it was probably hard for him, you know, thinking about it. But he did fine. Yeah. Apparently he's doing okay he's doing if okay, you yeah. end up winning multiple gold medals in various different events in your life. Yeah. He's doing pretty good. He's doing all right. All right. So we've got you to the Air Force Academy. Skiing is your sport. Were you doing anything else? Yeah, I actually played on the club softball team as well. So oh, cool. uh, growing up, we always did uh, softball too in the summer, the non-ski season. Well, really, uh, yeah, just we played any sport we could. Eventually, we kind of had to, you know, basketball, volleyball. But, you know, once you get older, you kind of have to pick. And then we kind of stuck with skiing and softball. Yeah. And we were always the best at skiing. So okay, softball took kind of a side note. But then when I was at the academy... Like I said, kind of with recruiting, they don't have very many female athletes there. So it was easier to walk onto the softball team. I don't think any other college you could play two sports, but at the Air Force Academy, yeah, you wild. can. Yeah. It's, I mean, playing one sport up there seems pretty chaotic because you're the academic life and yeah. the, the military training that you're going through all is so intensive as well. Yeah. Basically, sports were my, um, my social life, but it was perfect because then I got to leave. You know, I would miss marching on saturdays because i had a softball tournament or ski team we're like oh we made nationals see you guys we're going for a week (laughs) (laughs) and then i'd have well i was not the smartest on the team ever and so then somebody would be teaching me in the van how to do my chemistry homework so there was still balance but okay (laughs) it was worth it i thought nice Uh, the picture is coming together a little more here yeah i was wondering how the air force academy being in colorado springs had a ski team when there's really no ski skiing I on know. the front range you're telling me this was my biggest appointment disappointment because mm-hmm. i grew up in tahoe so yeah at, from reno there are 10 ski areas within an hour and a half and so my whole life i've been hearing about this great colorado skiing i get recruited for the air force academy i'm like yeah i'll go and then i get here and i'm like the closest mountain is two and a half hours and uh, on like, a bad traffic day six or seven hours are you joking I was like, yeah it's just a great colorado skiing everyone's been telling me about <laughs> yeah uh, it was a quite a bit disappointment but it's okay we got over it got over it okay yeah well was was the military ever kind of in your your grid for life or was it just you know you you fell into it through the, the skiing realm? i fell into it through skiing but i think growing up i always knew that you know, an average day-to-day desk job wasn't for me. So I always kind of imagined I would do something in my mind, like quote-unquote cool, but I didn't know what that was. So so the dream was not always like from a young kid to fly through the skies. No. Oh, nice. That developed along the way. Yeah. All right. Which is like a lot of pilots, I feel like they judge you for that because a lot of them have wanted it forever, but there's plenty of pilots too that just fall into it. Yeah. Okay, so you're out of the academy. Mm-hmm. You've decided you're going to fly. Right. Which, if 
and I don't know everything about the Air Force, but that usually sounds like it means you go somewhere not fun for a while. Yeah, so I went to pilot training. All the pilot training bases are in the middle of nowhere because they need a lot of airspace for... (laughs) And places to put planes down if you screw it up. Yeah, and nice weather and and good airspace or a lot of extra airspaces in the middle of nowhere. So I went to Del Rio, Texas, um, and that is where... So the Air Force is the reason that now I have way too many hobbies because I was... In the past 10 years, basically, I've been around very few locations with snow. So, of course, skiing is my first love. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, now I'm in the middle of Texas for two years. What am I going to do? But there was a lake, and so we got really into wakeboarding and wake surfing. And then my next duty base, we got into skydiving. And so I was like, kind of every time the Air Force has forced me to move, not usually to a place with snow, then I'm like, okay, what am I going to get into here? What can I do? And now I have just way too many hobbies. (laughs) And were you the kind of athlete that in one of these new hobbies, you went from zero to competitive right away? Like, were you, okay, these are just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. I mean, eventually, so wakeboarding, wake surfing, after doing it for two years, you get pretty decent at it. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not like one of those natural, everything comes easy. Okay. But I'm definitely, I've always been a really hard worker. Like I've never been the most gifted, but I'm like, oh, I'll keep working at it. (laughs) Persistence. It pays off. Yeah. 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 So how did you fall into flying the C-130? So the way it works in the Air Force is you go to pilot training and then based on how you do there, which they have, they grade you on everything. There's academic tests, daily flights, check rides, and then you graduate at a certain order in your class. And then also based on what they have available in the Air Force at that time. So... You could even be the very number one person in your class. You've always wanted F-22, but if that week they don't have F-22s, then you don't get it. So it's kind of luck of the draw a little bit, but also based on your merit. So I, in pilot, I didn't really know, kind of like I didn't know I wanted to be a pilot before the academy. When I went to pilot training, I didn't have a specific plane in mind, really, which I actually think is the best way to go. Because until you really get into flying, you don't know what you're good at. And some people just love formation, love pulling G's. Other people like, no, that's not really for me. And then from, I knew that I loved, like I like being around people and I like having a crew. So I knew that, okay, I think I, I want to fly one of the bigger planes because you fly for six hours and then you hang out with your crew and go to the bar and that's where you debrief versus like the fighter pilots props to them but they'll fly for like an hour and a half and then they'll debrief it for four hours and they'll be in the vault studying all day and i was like nah it's not for me no (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that paints a little better picture of what flying is like (laughs) yeah i feel like although i kind of feel like after of some of the stories that we've heard over glasses of wine up the road yeah not all flights are six hours you're right so now it's like totally different because now i'm flying at the academy i'm back here i'm flying a cessna Mm-hmm. So I'm back flying a little plane and now, yeah, an hour and a half is the most I fly now. But I thought there's been a couple of stories that you've told of horrible long flights like yes. across the Atlantic and other places yeah. where there's a lot more on the line than just watching the clock and getting back in a couple hours. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So there's been some cool missions. I think every Air Force pilot's got a couple of stories. So um, I fly specifically rescue C-130s. And so there's been a couple rescues that went really long, but were really cool missions. So that's yeah. been really fun to be a part of. I seem to remember there was some story about, do we, or do we not go back to Iceland? 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and we did go back to Iceland. The oh. winds over the ocean were stronger than we thought, and so we had to divert into Iceland. It was very exciting. I mean, that's a hell of a story if you want to yeah. tell all of it. We've got time, but if not, we can move on. It's, it's not a great story. It was just, hey, we barely had enough fuel to make it, and then the winds were stronger than we thought, and then every our uh, navigators, we had this all-star navigator team. They were trying to find the perfect storm of like this altitude at this speed and we can make it work and then the pilots on the other hand we had this like spidey sense we're like no no we got to turn around yeah like, this isn't so gonna happen we're like let the navs do their thing for a little while and keep calculating keep calculating because they might have been able to come up with something they're like try this altitude okay try this altitude okay and then eventually like the pilots like no man we gotta turn around and, and we- when you say turn around <laughs> how far back was turning around so we were past the halfway point across the atlantic ocean and had to go all the way back oh my gosh and then we landed and got fuel and then our mission commander still wanted us to finish crossing the ocean so then we we had an augmented crew that day so then we flew back over the ocean so it was a very long day <laughs> so one and a half times across the atlantic <laughs> yeah. just for funsies basically for funsies, yeah yeah <laughs> this was actually coming home from afghanistan so it was our deployment in Afghanistan. We were all coming home, which actually I think also people, it was kind of torn. People were like, oh yeah, night in Iceland. Let's do that. And then a lot of people were like, nah, let's just go home. I was going to say, maybe the navs were kind of just ready to go home. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> like, no, we're over this. <laughs> we can find it. We can make it work. We're like, okay, go for it. <laughs> you went on a couple deployments, right? Uh-huh. I've been to um, Africa, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and actually also Italy. That was on the same one, but. Okay. Couple. And you were primarily working like search and rescue mm-hmm. missions during that time? Mm-hmm. Do you have any yeah, standout stories? It's pretty cool. Rescue is a very interesting mission to be in because right now, at least in my last deployment in Iraq, we actually weren't rescuing people very often because um, our guys weren't getting into too much trouble. So it's kind of an interesting job where... Yeah, it's so interesting because for us, we love doing rescues because that's our job and that's exciting missions and that's what we train for our entire career. But then if we're having to rescue someone, that means somebody else is having a really bad day. So I've had deployments um, where we just sit on alert for months at a time and don't get called for a single mission. So we'll still fly training and we'll do other things. Mm -hmm. Well, usually depending on our commander, we'll hopefully get to do, you know, normal cargo runs, helicopter refueling. Just other things to support, like what's going on in that country. But yeah, we won't get called for a mission. And so people will get bored and like kind of cynical. But then you have to remind everyone like, hey, guys, if we're not doing any rescues, that means that all our troops and our allies are not needing to be rescued, which is really good. Yeah, that's great mm-hmm. news. Yeah. I feel similarly about the nursing world. Yeah. But boring is good. Yeah, boring is good. And that's hard for people to say sometimes, especially like your young loan master who just is so excited he flies a rescue C-130 or is on the crew. And then we get there and he just sits around for a couple months. So you have to remind him like, hey, boring is good. Well, I feel like a lot of the perception of, of deployments uh, can sometimes be like, oh, those are dangerous. Like, oh, you're in potentially war zones. Mm-hmm. And in your case, the danger came during vacation. Is that uh, yeah. Very ironic. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to take you out of the skies and back to the water. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. <laughs> so I, I know you've probably told this story quite a few times. But okay. Would you, would you give us the, the rundown sure. of what, what happened? 
Yeah. So this was, I had been a couple years into flying. Um, it was 2015. I had already done a couple deploy, or I had already done the Afghanistan deployment. And at this point, to say you're into flying, like this, you have decided to make this a thing, a career. You're bought in at this point, right? Yeah, it wasn't- pretty bought in. The Air Force actually requires you, you have a 10 year commitment if you go to pilot training. Okay. So I was probably about halfway through that commitment. All right. So definitely mm-hmm. still had quite a few years to go. Okay on my commitment before I had a choice to get out, but was Mm. loving it and, you know, didn't have any plans to do anything else. So I was visiting my friends on the weekend. We'd go a station in Georgia and my best friends were uh, stationed in Florida in Destin, which is an awesome area. They had this house right on the beach, um, right on the water, and they had jet skis and paddle boards. And so every weekend, you know, I was like, well, I could stay in Georgia and hang out in the swamps or can go to Destin and do all these adventurous things, sail, paddleboard, yeah. wakeboard, scuba dive. We were getting, I was getting my scuba diving certification. So I spent so many weekends there that some people thought I was actually stationed there. They'd be like, oh, Christy's not stationed here. Cause like I'm air force, like everybody else I would hang out with. I was like, actually, no, I live four hours down the road in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> but this is worth it. But it is worth it. And I think it was. So, um, it was a weekend in April and I was paddleboarding right behind my best friend's house. So they live in this little cove um, and they had a dock right on the water. And I was out there paddleboarding with my boyfriend at the time. And um, I was actually hit by a hit and run boat driver. So very, just like, you know, that's life. Very ironic because here I have deployed to Afghanistan. I skydive. I was riding a motorcycle for a while and... So I'm on my paddleboard, which to me is like the most tame hobby I have. It's right? it, it's literally <laughs> a thing people use to do yoga on. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. yeah. And right behind my best friend's house, we had paddle. I had paddleboarded there at least like 50 other times. Um, never seen any boats in there. It was this little cove, and the only boats that were ever in that cove was if you lived there. And we knew everyone that lived there because we spent so much time out on the water. So. Um, yeah, was hit by a hit and run boat driver. They didn't stop. Um, so to this day, I'll never know, like, did they see me? Did they not? But I basically was standing on top of my paddle board and saw them and like waved and yelled and thought they would go around. And then took me a couple seconds, like a split second to realize that they weren't going around. And that's when I jumped off my board to the left. Um, and then I was actually hit by the very front of the boat when my shoulder. And then I... Uh, So first miracle was I pushed off the bottom of the boat and I swam down, which hands down saved my life because otherwise my entire body was going through the propeller. But since I pushed off the bottom of the boat and I swam down, then the propeller just struck my right leg as I was swimming down. So to me, that was my guardian angel, God, because there's no way I had time to think that. Yeah. Um, And then just everything after that was so amazing. Didn't hurt. I was really calm. Tim was with me. He had jumped off his board the other way. He swam to me right away. He's like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) Like in that tone of voice. And then that's about when we both saw like my bone of my right leg sticking out and like blood everywhere. And so him and I kind of realized, oh, maybe I'm not fine. (laughs) Yeah. And he was wearing a long sleeve t-shirt. So we, in the water, we like made it into a tourniquet. And then the boat that had hit me had not stopped, but there was actually a fishing boat about a quarter mile away underneath this bridge fishing. 
Um, and there was boat traffic always under the bridge. And so they had actually seen the whole thing happen. So the fishing boat came um, and got us. And the crazy thing is like all this stuff went in my head because I was so close to my best friend's dock. I was like, should I just swim? But our boards, we couldn't see where our boards were gone. And just like the rate of rate that I was losing blood was so quick that I think them, the fishing boat coming to us was the fastest way. But we were thinking all these things like, oh, I could probably just swim to the dock. Anyway, so they got me in the back of their boat, the fishing boat, and um, they had this cooler. And so the tourniquet that we had made with the t-shirt wasn't tight enough. And so we actually used their fishing net. We used the handle to crank the t-shirt down. Mm -hmm. And that's when we were finally able to get um, my blood to stop. So we estimated the whole thing. It just was like really fast happened in about three minutes from like when I got hit to, or when I was like standing on my board and jumped off to then being in the back of the fishing boat with the tourniquet applied. And I lost, I'll let you do the math because you're the nurse, but my hemoglobin level was down at 6.1 when, yeah. when they got me. You lost so, a lot of blood. I lost a lot <laughs> yeah. of blood. For those of us who don't know what that number means, Josh, fill me in. Uh, I mean, for, for us sitting here, our hemoglobin is probably sitting around 13, 14, um, maybe, maybe closer to 18 or 19, depending. Yeah, you know, how diluted it is. Uh, that's you lost probably at least at least half your blood volume, depending yeah. on on the situation. Yeah, and it, there are a lot of other factors in there, um, but that's a lot of blood to lose. Yeah, they kind of say like usually like they transfuse anyone below seven most likely, and then like four is where you're close to bleeding out, fatal. So and that all happened so quick. So yeah, maybe another thirty seconds. Who knows? really happy to be sitting here with you guys today. Well, yeah, we are too. happy to have you here as <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah. My goodness. Um, that... And from what I know from having heard the story from you before, yeah. it's not like three minutes and done because you were still a long way from the hospital. Yeah. So then we, um, there was a volunteer fighter, firefighter um, station just down the street. So they came pretty quickly and it was funny because I was still really calm. The pain hadn't hit yet and... So they were talking to the pilots. They knew it was pretty bad. And so they were going to life flight me out on a helicopter because the nearest trauma center was 45 minutes away in Pensacola. But they were talking to, to the pilots about the ceilings of the clouds. So it was really funny, like laying there being a pilot. I'm like, oh, let me see. <laughs> they look like they're about 1,500 feet to me. But, <laughs> but I, I guess it's lower wherever they're, <laughs> they're coming from. So then I went in, the, in an ambulance on the ground um, all the way. 45 minutes and about halfway through the ambulance ride is when it started to really hurt when the shock kind of wore off. But I just talked to my EMTs. I was counting down time in my head. And then another cool part of my story is that when I was back in Del Rio, Texas, uh, in pilot training back in 2009, 2011, so this is like four years later, um, there was another pilot training student and he also ironically was in a boating accident and he lost his leg below the knee mm -hmm. and he got back to flying C-17s. So when I was laying in the back of the ambulance, so my leg was actually still attached, but I knew I couldn't feel it, which wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And so the funny thing is like when I'm in the back of the ambulance, what I thought was, well... I think this is going to take me off the flying schedule for a while. <laughs> and I think the schedulers are going to be mad at me. <laughs> and that's the first thing I thought. And then the second thing I thought was, all right, well, 
you know, worst case, because I knew I couldn't feel my leg, which was not good. I was like, Ryan did it. I can do it. So I was already kind of thinking like, I know an amputee. I hope I'm not going to be an amputee, but I can't feel my leg, which I know is not good. And so he got back to flying. I'm going to get back to flying. So that, I mean, if you think about it, I just feel so fortunate. Like we're talking 20 minutes after this happened. I'm already thinking that. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that you were in a mental state to be considering that and not panicking the whole time is amazing. Yeah. Like just your, your response to the whole situation. Because especially for active people, the pro, I mean, for any human, the prospect of losing a limb doesn't sound like a great day in the park for people who (laughs) maintain their sanity through being active, through connecting with their body, with nature, with movement. This sounds like the absolute almost the worst nightmare you could imagine yeah but i think also being active sports it also kind of trains you to not panic because Mm -hmm. if you've been like in softball you've been in high pressure situations before and like just focus on the task at hand or the same when i was flying like in afghanistan or anything i feel like i just had so much training of okay what's happening right now okay right now we need to apply a tourniquet okay, right now I'm in the back of an ambulance, you know? So it it kept me, I think, from panicking. And I also still, you know, for me, faith is a big part. And so I mm-hmm. just felt like God was with me. And that's probably the biggest part that yeah. just gave me peace was probably because God. <laughs> He's that's... like, I have more of a plan for you. I was like, okay, <laughs> like, fine. we go. <laughs> <laughs> so in some situations, there is a concerted attempt to save a limb. And sometimes it's blatantly obvious this isn't going to go right. Where were you on that scale? They were not going to save it. So I think people thought that because I was so calm and not screaming or anything in the hospital. And when I first, we saw this happen both with the firefighters, because they had put a towel over my leg. And so they didn't even realize it was trauma until Michelle, she was in the fishing boat, like lifted up the leg and then they kind of freaked out. And then the same thing happened when I finally got to the hospital in the trauma center. They had also put a towel over it. And so no one was really rushing. And then as soon as the surgeon saw it, I saw on her face. Like, I just knew immediately, like, it's gone. Mm. But at that point, I just, oh, and the other thing is they don't, they won't give you strong enough meds, I think, until they decide if they're going to try to save the limb. And so I was just in such excruciating pain at that point. I didn't even care about whether my leg was being saved or not. I was like, I just don't want to be awake anymore. Whoa. So I'm like, just knock me out. <laughs> like whatever I've got left when I wake up, we'll handle it <laughs> yeah. then. Yes. Because like wow. by this point, I had been through 25 minutes of like the worst pain you can imagine. So I'm like, just knock me out. <laughs> yeah, I'll deal with the leg later. And then Whoa. just based on her face, I was like, it's gone. <laughs> they, they probably rushed you into surgery uh-huh. at that point. And yep. what was the, the process like after surgery? Like when you're coming? Yeah. What was waking up like? <laughs> so funny. There's some funny stories. Um, I woke up and then I knew my friends were there because they, you know, that's who I was with, my best yeah. friends. Mm-hmm. And then Tim had called my sister who actually, my twin sister, who at this time was in medical school in Las Vegas. So I found out later that, well, he had called her, actually, this is, I just don't know how I was so calm, but when we were in the ambulance, I told Tim, I'm like, okay, you need to call these four people. You need to call my sister. I had her number memorized. Like, you need to call my friend from the squadron so the military knows. And then this just like shows you the state of mind. And I was like, oh, so we have family friends in Pensacola. (laughs) (laughs) Tell them to come by. Tell them to come up. (laughs) I'm having my leg off. That's so ridiculous. Like, why did I think that? Um, Okay. So. 
Yeah, so I, I knew my sister was there. Well, I knew that he had called her, and I, I didn't know when I woke up that she was there, but I figured there was a good chance that she was, and my friends. And so when I woke up, the first thing I wanted was to be like, where are my friends and my sister? But they wouldn't let me. They, I don't know, they were enforcing their like visiting hours or something. Oh. So they wouldn't let me see anyone at first. And so all I had was my cell phone. And so I'm like, okay, I guess I'll just call people. So one of the first people I called was my dad, which is so funny because, well, he tells a story later, but Jess had called my whole family. So they knew and no one knew like, like it's bad. She might lose her leg. So my dad was up all night praying like for me to save my leg or whatever. So then at, and he's on West Coast time, we're on East Coast time. So I call him at like eight in the morning or whatever, but it's five or four for him. And so he gets a phone call and he's not expecting it to be me. Like he's expecting <laughs> it to be somebody else reporting about my commission. I'm like, right. hey dad. <laughs> what are you doing calling my me? My leg is gone. Yeah. <laughs> like oh. I don't even know what I said. I actually have to ask him that. Like, what did I say exactly? I don't remember, but... So yeah, I call both my parents and then I think eventually my friends got in there and then I was just hanging out with them. Well, and that's kind of the beginning of the road to recovery. Yeah. Where, where did that take you? Like, how quickly did they let you leave? So, I mean, the military, it's actually really been nice to see the response of the military. It was more than I ever expected. So my commander, this was on a Saturday because it was a weekend. My commander and like half of my unit was there the next day, even though it was like four or five hour drive from Georgia. So they were all there and they started working it because that was a civilian hospital. So they started working to get me sent to either Brooks Army Medical, which is in um, San Antonio, Texas, or Walter Reed. So those are the kind of the military centers for amputees. And so they started working that. And then they actually even put one of my friends, one of my closest friends from my unit, they put him on official military orders to escort me. So basically for the first two weeks after I lost my leg, his job was handling anything that came up, Whoa. which was like that's amazing, crazy amount. And it was so cool. Like, this is my friend. So I'm just glad he's there. But then he's also like, this is his official military duty. And he was doing so, there was so much stuff that I didn't even know was going on in the background. Like the military was doing a safety investigation, seeing if there was any chance it was my fault, like, was I under the influence anyway? And so all this stuff was going on in the background, but I didn't even know about it. And it was so cool. And there was, like, one specific story with him where we had both been deployed in Afghanistan and we had done some rescues for people. Um, and we pride ourselves on in the C-130 about, like, okay, we got to call this this um, soldier has been shot and we can respond as fast as we can and we'll go rescue them and pick them up and get them back. Well, sometimes we'll get them back to the U.S. base and there'll be a huge delay for ambulances. So we'll have worked so hard to respond really quickly and then we'll be back at the U.S. base and the ambulances aren't don't come. And so it was like a huge thing of like always the ambulance. So here we are now in Florida. This is his military duty and I was getting medevaced from Florida to Brooks Army Medical, and we couldn't get any ambulance. <laughs> and so, like, George, this is, like, this young captain, like, one of my friends, but he's, like, walking around the air, the hospital making it sound so fish. He was like, yeah, Captain Christie Wise, um, I'm her family liaison officer, and we need an ambulance for her right now. The military is coming to get her. And he, like, got one to show up. <laughs> like, later, the, the commander's, like, back at the base I was at was like, wait, 
who paid for that? Like, how did <laughs> we're like, we don't even know. So it was just so cool. And then we were just joking him and I of like, man, this is like Afghanistan. And like, what are the chances? Like, look, trying to find an ambulance. But so yeah. <laughs> so we got, I went to Brooksari Medical in San Antonio. And that was just amazing because you, like being a military amputee, I was immediately surrounded by all these other amazing athletes. Like here I am with like rangers and Navy SEALs who have stepped on ID in Afghanistan. And these are my workout buddies. And like a lot of them are as motivated, like super motivated. So that made me motivated. And it also helped like, okay, I can't really feel sorry for myself if I'm like, oh, I lost a leg. <laughs> my buddy over here, he's lost like two legs and he's burned. <laughs> so Yeah. So it was kind of, it was just like a really great place to be. Um, to do my recovery and just to be surrounded by that environment, pushed, um, just have a community like that immediately was great. Did that help normalize very quickly what your new normal was? Oh, yeah, for sure. And also, like, the thing that I was most surprised about but loved is in the amputee community, especially the military, it's all humorous. Like, we're just making fun of each other all the time. Mm. Leg jokes left and right, like, just helps like we're all in a very crappy serious situation but Mm -hmm. everyone's making the best like making fun of it and And making light of it we had mike derner on the show who works with uh paralympics Mm -hmm. and he reported basically the same mentality among the athletes that he works with is like all right we all know that life ain't fair we all got dealt a real rough hand but we might as well laugh at it when we can joke about it because like what else are you gonna do yeah yeah was that a welcome respite from the rest of life where none of the rest of anybody knows what to do when all of a sudden old friends I are like, hey, so. hey, how's the rest of you? Like, yeah. see, you're missing a leg. What do I do with this? Yeah, I think I just really relate now whenever I meet like new amputees or whoever is kind of isolated because I know how much harder it is when you're isolated. And I know how much of a difference it made when people kind of brought me under their wing and like, oh, hey you got to get this leg, you try this to sleep at night. And so now that I'm kind of on the other side, it'll always be a struggle. But now I also try to do that for others. Like, yeah, how can I help you? Because I know how valuable that is. And you just hinted on an aspect of the amputee experience of like, just by saying, here's how you sleep at night. Like there's a host of physiological phenomena that are associated with losing a limb that maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with phantom pains and itching and stuff like this that you can't solve because you don't have a foot to scratch, right? Yeah. Yeah, the... Man. <laughs> so, <laughs> the initial pain of losing a limb was really bad. Well, I always say it was like nine because 10 would be death and I haven't died yet, so... Right, there's maybe, you got to leave some room at yeah, the top. Yeah, there's got something a little worse. Yeah. But it's great. Yeah, as an amputee, you just... You, you almost daily have... Well, it just depends. So... A lot of amputees have phantom pain. So basically, these nerve tracks, like your body, like right now, my brain is sending a signal to my right foot. And then your brain will interpret the lack of a signal back as pain. Because Mm. those nerve tracks are always going to be there for the rest of your life. My brain is still going to send a signal through that nerve to my right foot. But no signal is going to come back. And so it isn't that an inappropriate signal is coming back. It's that no signal comes back and your brain says... That's bad. I'm just going to say pain now. Correct. 
No way. Or so what I get, I don't actually get phantom pain very often sometimes. And I just get it so randomly. I won't have phantom pain for months and months. And then I'll just have one day where I'm flying, working, whatever, and it'll just be really bad. I'll mm. have it all day. So it's very random. Or I get more often phantom itch, which is the most worst thing in your life. Oh, because heard about this. Your right foot or your right ankle is itching, but you don't have anything to scratch. And is that like, if you closed your eyes and you sat there, you could point to where it should be. Like uh -huh. it feels exactly like it felt oh, yeah. when you still had that foot. Yep. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. The thing that I'll do that helps, but this is really hard to do. So the best thing to do for it is take your prosthetic leg off and then massage the muscles that you have left. So you're kind of trying to mm -hmm. trick your brain. Like, okay, right. here's the muscles I have. Let's massage them. Let's get them moving around. Rem remember, we don't have a yeah. leg there anymore. Remember, it's okay, kind of yeah. the end of it. Yeah. So, can you stop itching? But it's not like in the middle of the day, you can just, uh, like anytime I take my leg off, then I can't walk. Now I can't work i can't yeah you can't just be sitting in the pilot seat I'm like <laughs> yeah. hold on can you hold my hold leg on, for a second i can take my leg off i don't need the rudder pedals at all yeah, yeah we're fine <laughs> yeah has that happened though you ever had to take oh, yeah. the leg off during a flight i haven't no oh okay <laughs> it hurt yeah i haven't ever taken off during flight so. okay wow well you named a couple things that people might not suppose what what are some other challenges that you faced early on you're like wow this is my new real reality um so i think just even simple stuff like learning to stand, learning to walk again. Everyone's like, well, I already know how to walk. But now you're walking, you have to walk with this device that is not real. So your brain, like it's really hard. One of the things that you have to do when you're first an amputee and even veteran amputees still have to work on this. You have to actually shift your weight into your prosthetic leg. That's really, really hard because your brain knows this is not real. This is fake. So your brain doesn't trust it. So you, but if you don't ever put your weight into your prosthetic side, then you're always like leaning towards your sound side. So amputees, some of them, if you don't work on this, like whenever I had a really good therapist, this is just where it's, I'm so blessed to be in the military. But if you don't work on it, you won't even realize it. you'll always stand on your good leg and amputees will actually have their spine start to curve towards their good side. And they'll Whoa. have really bad knee problems and they'll have all these things. So it's like a very conscious effort where I, whenever I'm standing, I try to at least have even and sometimes even more weight in my prosthetic side to give my sound side a break. But that's definitely just work, just a challenge. So it's very mental. Um, okay. Am I not thinking about my walking? Like then I'm probably limping or just things like that. Well, and before this is, we're getting close to garage full of legs <laughs> that we started the show with but before we get there if you don't mind i would love to ask and if it's too personal we can cut it um mentally what were those early days like because there is all the fuss yeah. but there's also quiet moments where it's just you left in the bed yeah looking down and there's only one foot yes looking back i think there were a couple of sort of freak out moments um, one of them I can think of specifically was one of my friends sat down on the spot where my leg used to be. And that really freaked me oh. out. So of course, like he just sat down because he wants to be close to me, supporting me. But to me, it was like, <gasps> like you're sitting where my leg should be, but it's not there. Like a strange violation of personal space. Yeah. Like, yeah, like that's where my oh. leg should be, but it's not. So there are definitely a couple of instances like that where it's just like, ah, oh, this sucks. But the weird part for me mentally was I was actually so positive 
um, initially. Um, another thing that helped that was in the hospital, the very first day, even the first day of the first couple of days, everyone was so surprised that I lived through that. So mm. being in Florida, being around Destin, they have a lot of boating fatalities, a lot, and they yeah. don't have many survivors. So from that very first day, it was kind of more of an attitude of we're just so happy you're alive rather than we're sad you lost your leg. And so that, that, yeah, so that was like amazing for all of us. It was like, we really like that's was the truth of it. And then that kind of rubbed off on all of us, like me and my family and my friends of like, yeah, I am just so happy to be alive. And then also, like I said, with Ryan McGuire, like, I guess in my mind, I was already like, I'm getting back to flying. I'm doing everything I did before. Mm. And so I was really positive initially. And I think for me, I struggled the most a couple months later when I didn't lose those goals, but they just took so much longer than I wanted them to. And it's probably important to note for the vast majority of everyone who doesn't know this, and we didn't know it until we started looking on the show. There's, correct me if I'm wrong, six pilots who have ever returned to to the flight line after correct. losing a leg. Yep. And you are the only woman I'm to the have only done woman. it. Yep. So this wasn't, when you say your goals, this wasn't like, oh man, I'd love to just get back to the gym. We're talking about literally doing a thing a human had never done as a woman. It's true, but I also, I mean, I, I always try to tell people this is like, I don't think of myself as a girl pilot. I just think of myself as a pilot. <clears throat> so to me, yes, I do like that they highlight that because I want to, of course, inspire future girls and other amputees to come. But in my mind, I was like, six other guys have done it. Six other pilots have done it. So I'm just another pilot doing what they did. Fair enough. Although we're still talking about a thing that only 10 people in the history of the U.S. Air Force have done. Less than 10. I just want to highlight that because yeah. I think this is amazing. Well, the other thing that's so funny, and this is just like life for me, I like irony. I, the C-130, as is probably the hardest plane to fly as an amputee because of the props and P factor. So What's it would be easier for me to fly F-22 with a one leg than it is to fly a C-130. So because of the way the props spin, they actually, um, they spin a certain way. So it creates, even in normal flight, even without engines out, it creates a right turning tendency, which you fix with right rudder. So pretty much in a flight, you almost always have your right foot on the rudder. And especially in like takeoffs and landings. And so... Literally, if I would have lost my left leg, my life would be way easier. Oh, my gosh. So that was another thing when I was getting back to flying was, man, any other plane would be easier to fly than this one. Was there any chance of switching to another plane? Yeah. Or oh, yeah. for you, was it like, no, coming back means back in the C-130? So I wanted to go back to C-130s because I loved rescue. And so I wanted to at least give it my all for that. But... Um, part of the steps of getting back to flying. So the Air Force, and the good thing is, so because I was a six, the other five guys, the other five pilots told me all this stuff. They said, all right, you got to prove you can egress. So you got to go up and down the stairs mm -hmm. very smoothly. So no one can tell you're an amputee. And the stairs in the C-130 are really big, really tall. And so it was really cool in the rehab center. They actually built me stairs, C-130 stairs. Oh, sweet. And so I practiced oh, those. And then every day, which was really tough. And then... If we ever have an engine out on the C-130, especially on my left side, which is my would be my bad side, then you have double the amount of thrust going the other way and you would use your foot to counter it on the rudder. And our the books that we have that we study say it can be up to 150 pounds of force that you would need in your feet. And so it's funny because even as a C every C-130 pilot knows, 
like engine out scenarios are hard when you had two legs, like when you're an athlete. And so, yeah, I had to learn how to do that with a fake leg. And so the flight docs, before they returned me to flying, I had to do a one-legged leg press with my prosthetic side for 150 pounds. And this is, as you were just telling us, the very thing your brain doesn't want to do. Yeah. Is put pressure where it where your brain is telling you it's not safe. It's There's not no safe. leg there. Yeah. I can't and, do that. Yeah, and that's the one pounds. thing you had to do. Yep. So we worked on it like every day, me and my therapist, like, all right, I got to do stairs. I got to do the um, 150 pound leg press. And then the last thing was I had to pass the Air Force fitness test. So basically from the other amputee pilots, it's like, well, even the crabby thing is like, even though there was precedence, it had already been done. They said the doctors are unfortunately still conservative. So their default thing is for you to get out. And so everyone's going to want you to get out. They're not going to want you to fly it again. So basically, you have to do every possible thing that they could tell you no for. You have to prove that you can do it. So you have to do a normal fitness test like everybody else says. You have to do a 150-pound leg press, just like the books say. You have to be able to climb up and down the stairs. So anything where they could say, no, you can't do it because you have to prove to them before your board even happens that you can do that. Whoa. And you managed to knock off every single one of these. Yep. <sighs> It's so cool. <laughs> but imagine, I mean, it is cool, but it's also like, imagine if I didn't have those guys telling me the first, like the first one blows my mind. Even so there was like the first two, the first one was in 1997. He was in a helicopter crash in Ecuador and then got back to flying helicopters. He was below the knee. So it had happened. There had been two guys below the knee. Well, the first one above the knee, no one thought was possible because every joint is so important, especially for flying. So the first guy above the knee, no one believed him it, it was possible. He trained himself. He actually taught himself to run in his own garage on a treadmill. He like, he fell so many times. He built this like harness in his garage and taught himself to run on the treadmill. He built his own rudder pedals and he practiced them every day for like a year. And wow. so he was, in my mind, like he's a hero because he did all of that. And so then... And at that point, no one knew it was possible. Like, can you fly as an above-the-knee amputee? Mm -hmm. It's so much harder than below the knee. And so, to me, coming in, now I'm, I was actually the third above the knee. So, it's so much easier for me. Yeah, all those steps were so hard to accomplish, but I knew they were possible because of them already yeah. doing it before me. So, it's yeah. pretty amazing resources yeah. as well. Yeah, and then there was even one time I was in the simulator right when I first got back to C-130s and they were testing me on these in-and-out scenarios and I was crashing it every time. And I was kind of freaking out, like, oh, maybe I can't fly the C-130. And so I actually asked the instructors, and, like, the instructors at the base I was at, they're very supportive, but they don't know amputee stuff, you know? And so I'm like, hey, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I, like, go to the bathroom, and then in the bathroom, I call every one of the five amputees. <laughs> I'm like, guys, I'm crashing it every time. What do I do? And they're like, okay, try this with your seat position. Try this, try this. And, like, just a couple little things that made a huge difference. So and you managed, me, and you went back in yeah, and, I, and managed and I, to keep it yeah, in the air. Yep. Whoa. But to me, I'm like, what if I didn't have that? <laughs> like, what if I don't have those resources? That I don't know. Mm. Well, I, I also want to highlight one thing I, I heard in a, an interview I was listening to. is okay. When we were creeping on you. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you have some great interviews out there, by the way. <laughs> it was about nine weeks into this recovery that you jumped into the Warrior Games. Mm -hmm. What? <laughs> like, 
How? How? Yeah. So that's actually a cool story. I so at the time, so I was only in Florida for three days. Got medevac to Brooks Army Medical Center, and then was in the hospital. I think ten or twelve days total, and then I got discharged and started working full time in the rehab center, which was great. But what happens when you lose a limb? You actually can't get in a prosthetic leg until your incision heals on your residual limb on your stump. So that takes about six weeks. So the hardest thing for me at first, honestly, was just being bored because now my own, I go from being this busy pilot and now my only job every day is rehab, but I can't get into a prosthetic leg to actually make progress on my rehab. So all I was doing all day, every day was working out. And so it was funny because I actually like joked with my brother, <laughs> my brother who's a professional skier. Like, Dave, I am in the best shape of my life because, <laughs> man, this is what it's like to work out eight hours yep. a day. And I was crutching everywhere because I didn't have a prosthetic leg yet. So my arms were so strong from crutching. Also, if you lose a leg, that's like 15 pounds. And so, um, like, so you're yeah. lighter. Yeah, you're lighter. It's like a weight loss thing. You know, you <laughs> lost some weight in the hospital. I'm like, man, this is the strongest I've ever been. <laughs> and so I was doing like pull-ups in the gym and there was another an air force coach she also was an amputee she coached the air force wounded warriors and she saw me working out in the gym doing some pull-ups and so she actually kind of recruited me on the spot she's okay. like hey do you know about warrior games i'm like no it's like okay well i think i think you would be good at it <laughs> like okay what is it <laughs> and so it was amazing because this was i think that initial part would have been a lot harder had I not gotten into Warrior Games because then all of a sudden she got me on the team. She's like, hey, our first event is in a couple weeks. You want to go? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Don't have anything else going on. And so then every night, instead of just being by myself, waiting for rehab the next day, I was learning how to do wheelchair racing on the track, doing my hand cycle. And um, that first... Warrior Games, I did everything seated. So I didn't do everything since I didn't even mm -hmm. have a prosthetic leg yet. I did everything yeah. with my arms and I'm uh -huh. crutching everywhere. I'm the strongest I've ever been. So it was so <laughs> cool because, yeah, I did wheelchair racing, hand cycling, swimming, and it was just, you know, pretty easy to do at that time. But I also didn't like doing it sitting seated. And so to my, I kind of told myself, like, this is awesome. And then I show up at Warrior Games and I'm surrounded by 300 other amazing athletes. You know, I don't, I can't even walk yet. And here's this guy sprinting by on two blades. And so that was amazing. And then I said, okay, I'm going to compete this, but then I'm coming back and I'm not doing anything seated. Like next time I compete, I'm doing it all standing. Like running normally, cycling on a normal bike, not a hand cycle. That was kind of my goal. Wow. I mean, it seems like through this whole process, you had a pretty clear vision of, okay, what, what could happen? What could I move towards? And it sounds like that provided a lot of motivation for you along yeah. the way. What happened when you did get your first prosthetic and started learning to walk with it again? Yeah. I mean, that was just another challenge in itself. Like, okay, now this is my main task every day. And just the same as everything, pain, adjusting, you know, the, I remember the first couple weeks, 
my therapist, she's like, okay, we're going to walk a half mile to like this lunch place. And it was insanely hard. Like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. And so, yeah, you just build up, you get better over time. Mm -hmm. And then you started progressing and running pretty quickly after that too. Yeah. Running. Sometimes running is easier than walking as an amputee. It's kind of, it's really hard too, though. They're all, everything's hard as an amputee. But I always knew from the amputee pilots that I had to pass my physical fitness test. So that was always like, I got to run as soon as possible because I got to have that passing time. Mm-hmm. And that was with a, a blade, right? Mm-hmm. What is it like to run with a blade? It's not very fun. No, really? <laughs> yeah. So everyone thinks, I think it would be fun to run with a blade below the knee. And especially if you're double below the knee, because then you can kind of get used to the carbon fiber spring and you can spring from one side to the next. Um, if you have a blade and a sound side, it's tough because you're, it, every stride is different. So your body's adjusting to two different types of strides. So you have one springy leg and one that just goes thump. Yeah. And the springy leg, the problem with that, what most people don't realize, especially above the knee, is the springy leg is only springy if you load it the completely correct way. So again, back to walking, it's so mental because if I, if my body, if my mind is afraid of that blade, so I don't put any weight in it, then I won't, the blade doesn't have any force to transfer. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not shifting my weight into my blade, I'm not getting anything out of it. It's almost like doing a squat every other step. Oh. And then depending on like your form, you can load the blade so it bounces you straight up in the air or straight back. Whereas like you want it to bounce you forward, but you have to have the perfect body position and load it the correct way to bounce forward. So, that's so the if you get that part. wrong, it's literally bucking you and trying to send you back the way you, you came. can. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they say, um, like the, some of the stats on it are if you run either way, a blade is energy draining because it's just not as good as a real leg. It doesn't mm. contract and expand like muscles do. So for a below the knee, they say it takes about 30% more energy and for above the knee, 60%. And it's so, it's totally true. So what would have felt like five miles to me with two legs, I'll get that tired after one mile. Whoa. And then what about cycling? Yeah. So cycling is awesome. I, so I had never really done a lot of cycling or swimming before I became an amputee. And then again, when I was in Brooks Army Medical with all these other amputees around me, they said, Hey, Christy, do you cycle or swim? I was like, no, not really. Like, well, you're gonna, (laughs) like you need to. (laughs) Okay. And then they are just so right. So as amputee, everything that you do is so pounding so hard on your sound side. So you need forms of cardio that are going to help you keep the one knee you have for the rest of your life in good shape. And so they're right. And now I love cycling. I love swimming. And that's, I run because I have to, because I still have to pass my physical fitness test every single year. Mm-hmm. So I force myself to run, but I actually enjoy cycling and swimming. That's we, yeah. We got to go on a ride at some point. Yeah. <laughs> you guys be way faster than me, but it's okay. Well, I don't know. Like you said, you got 15 pounds that you drop. <laughs> weight is everything yeah, in cycling. That's true. That is true. That's true. Okay. Um, so cycling. So every sport I have, this is why I have a um, garage full of legs. Right. Here is, we are. We're back here, to this. We're back to this. As an above the knee amputee, every single leg that I have is based on what you want the knee to do. So okay. for cycling, I cycle with a hinge. So completely free swinging, no hydraulic or any sort of resistance at all. 
because as I'm pedaling, I don't want to have any extra force that I have to pedal through. Right. So that's great. So, but on the other hand, it also means that I can't stand at all because I don't have a knee to stand on. Right. And you don't have as much put, like you have maybe one third the amount of force or push on your prosthetic side. Mm -hmm. But, and so a lot of amputees actually end up doing a recumbent, which is like a seated bike or some above the knee amputees ride with only one leg and then they get this like... They call it a stump cup. And I've seen these, yeah. Living here in the yeah. springs, you occasionally will see some of the para-athletes rolling around yeah. on the road, and I've and seen they, this. They do that because they're like, oh, my prosthetic side is so inefficient. I'd rather just not have it. But for me, I do, I've do. i always been, it just feels weird to me. I try to do everything as normal as possible. In yeah. my mind, normal. So right. if I can still have two, what feels like at least two legs, it helps my balance. And like, yeah, I might not be getting as much force out of that right side, but I still have it. And it's still yeah. pedaling every pedal. Like every rotation. For what it's worth, uh, the first night I met you, I did not know you were an amputee. And that's why I keep going back to this garage full of legs thing. <laughs> because you said that like halfway through dinner. And I'm like, what in the hell is she talking, she about? talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't know. I mean, it was winter. You had long pants on. Yeah. Your gait was not impeded sufficiently. I had no idea. And then all of that's a sudden, awesome. the garage full of legs. <laughs> so for somebody who doesn't know who's out in the world and has no concept of the world of prosthetics. That's something that, as I understand it, has come an immense amount of distance in the last even 10 or 20 years in terms of what's possible and what kinds of legs can be built. Yeah, so the military has actually furthered pro the prosthetic industry a lot. So before that, still in the U.S., unfortunately, with diabetes and just unhealthy lifestyle, still a majority of amputees in the U.S. are diabetic. So people really overweight mm -hmm. and just lose um, circulation in their feet and become amputees for that. So that's right. still about 70%. But you've it's really high, sadly. And, but these are people who are probably not going to go on to be terribly active Correct. and weren't before. So you've always had your younger amputees from motorcycle accidents, car wrecks and stuff. But what happened with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan is you had a lot of younger soldiers because of IEDs, because of car bombings and stuff. Um, come, Oh, and the advance of field medicine. So the military mm -hmm. got better and better. And so they're actually, these people were living through these types of things, whereas before they would have just bled out. Mm -hmm. And so now they're living and now coming back and wanting to do the things that they always did before, run. And so they really, the military has helped push the prosthetic in industry, whereas now the leg that I wear the most... Uh, Xena. So all my legs have names. We can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> all right. But Xena, Warrior Princess, is a um, computerized knee. So it's computerized and hydraulic. So it's actually completely tuned for me, how much I weigh, how fast I normally walk. And so the computer senses where you are in your stride, and then it tells the hydraulics how much to resist. So that's oh. the highest tech. This is the best thing there is on the market right now. And we don't have to get into actual numbers if you don't want, but we're talking about things that are more, that cost more as a leg than most people will spend on a car. Yeah. About, or at least a car. Yeah. And that's for this one, the, um, the microprocessor knee. And when you're walking in that, does it, does it make a noticeable difference in your gait? Like, does it feel like. So it definitely walks better than anything else I've tried than, okay. you know, mm -hmm. like I talked about for cycling, 
Petalina, my uh, hinge, which if I, I hate walking, you know, if we're like cycling, we're like, oh, let's go get coffee. I'm like, oh, I gotta walk in Petalina because it has no <laughs> resistance. So basically my knee will buckle on me at any time. So I have to use my muscle, my hamstring to hold the knee from actually buckling on you. Whoa. So that's what it's like walking in a hinge or there's a lot of things in between that. So like slight hydraulic assist, but the computer is great. Like it's the best thing out there. And so you definitely want that if you can get it, if you can get insurance to pay for it or whatever. But it's still a machine. So the hydraulics will go out randomly or sometimes I actually, on my last deployment in Iraq, the computer just like freaks out one day and goes into safe mode, which is like completely straight. And so, yeah, you're... So your leg is just straight. (laughs) There's no hinge left. I'm walking back with my crew from dinner and then I just start walking really weird. like. I'm like, ah, oh, guys, don't worry. I just got to go get some tools and try to figure out what's going on. Got a and even here. just like before that, in between that level, like sometimes the computer will just get confused. Like you step on a rock or something and it'll just stiffen up for a second and then it'll go back to normal. And so this is why I have my leg named because then I'll just like randomly, if you ever hear me yelling like Xena, then that's because <laughs> my leg just did that to me. <laughs> And do you have the unique problem of having to tell people, sorry, my leg just ran out of battery? Yeah. So, and what happened, actually, that that time in Iraq was, actually, that time was technically my fault. I ran out of battery. (laughs) Which, the battery lasts for six days. And the funny thing was, I, five years I was amputee, I never ran my leg out of battery. I was so good. But what happened in Iraq is every day was the same. We don't have weekends. We don't have days off. Uh So unlike, you know, back home, it would be easier to be like, oh, yeah, I charge it on the trip. Or like it was just easier to keep track of the days. And so when I was in Iraq twice, I ran out of battery because I just could not keep track of the days. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't even like be mad at the leg or the technology because I'm like, yeah, this is my fault. I'm like, Total operator error. Don't did I charge it? Don't know. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> Obviously didn't charge it. <laughs> I I have to know, have you pulled any pranks on people? Oh plenty. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. We used to like all our main maintainers in the C one thirty, they would love when I would come out to the plane because they would just have me like like, oh Christy, we got a new maintainer go go mess with him and so then i would like kick the tire or something and bend it in a weird angle and like yell <laughs> out and they'd come over and then freak them out or... well i'd love to talk about how you got your call sign too yeah so my call sign is clock well my last name's Y, so that makes sense but my call sign is clock because i can actually spin my leg around upside down in a complete circle and it looks just like the hand of a clock and so um so clockwise yeah clockwise <laughs> I remember when you did this uh, the first time I met you and you came over and visited, you <laughs> flipped your leg over to put your shoe on, I think. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. Like, well, hang, hang on. Actually, so this is why I have the rotator. It's a game changer because if you don't have a knee, it's really hard to put your shoes on. Like You can't bend your leg to put your shoes on. And so having the rotator means you can flip it upside down. You have way better angle, and that's what I do every single day, to put my shoes on and off. And that's why, that's really the only reason I have the rotator. It also works if you're driving. Some people drive with their other foot, and so they'll rotate their prosthetic leg out of the way. Mm-hmm. It has other devices, but mostly it's you just for putting your shoes on. Rotate that, like, up so where it's visible on the dash? like so. I, yeah, sometimes yeah. I do that. Or, like, in a bar, <laughs> I'll just hold my beer on top of my foot upside down. <laughs> like, people will walk to the bathroom, and they'll, like, double take. It's awesome. 
So back to the competition for a minute. Warrior Games were not the only thing that you got into after you lost your leg. Skiing has come back into your life. What was that process like? So I think in the back of my mind, ever since I lost my leg, which is in 2015, I always um, thought about Paralympic skiing. So just for my background, our whole family skiing and racing in college. And the other thing is I got recruited. This is kind of, I mentioned this earlier, but the amputee community is so small. And then the amputee athlete community is even smaller. And especially for females, like that's just the reality. So Mm -hmm. I'm now in this small niche. And so even when I was in the rehab center in Brooks Army Medical, I felt like I would get recruited for sports all the time. Like, oh, Chris, do you like to cycle? Hey, I'll coach you to Rio. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I like cycling, but like I get a little scared when I go too fast. So I actually don't like cycling. I love it, but like not enough to be a do it 10 hours a day or whatever. So I had a lot of people volunteering to coach me in different sports but in my mind I always thought if there was a sport I would try to make the Paralympics it would be in skiing since that's my first love and my background and warrior games and Invictus games are awesome in the military they're like a stepping stone but if you're doing the Paralympics it's definitely a higher level so you got to give a lot more um, effort and that's just how it works so but at the time, you know, my first goal was get back to flying, stay in the Air Force. So that took me a couple of years. And then I wanted to deploy again because mm-hmm. um, I was like, that's what we do in the military is deploy. So I want to prove that I can do it as an amputee. And so to me, I was like, kind of, okay, got back to flying, got to deploy. And then finally after that, I was like, all right, I want to see if I can do skiing. And that's when I uh, still wanted to keep up with Air Force, though. And so that's when I worked to get an assignment back here to Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. I knew when the Olympics were, I knew what year I needed to come back and that helped. And I, and I told my commanders this, I, w- I didn't hide it. Yeah. I was like, Hey, I really want to go back to the Academy. I really want to work with cadets, but I also want to see if I can try for the Paralympics. That's not my only reason. It's one of the reasons. Yeah. So I was honest about that. And so then last year, all of last year, I... Uh, joined the adaptive team up at Winter Park and did everything I could to make the Paralympic team. I, I mean, I remember you talking about some of this and yeah. how crazy it was because your current role, you're essentially shepherding what, two, 200, 300? Uh, just 100, but okay. bunch of cadets. Yeah, yeah, 100 cadets over at the Air Force Academy. <laughs> you're basically in charge of them trying to make sure they don't do anything too crazy. Yeah. And Which they do a lot, but it's fine. <laughs> not not terrible, but yeah, that's a lot of your life right there. And you're also trying to pick up skiing in the highest level of competition. Yep, two and a half hours away. Yep, like that. Yeah, because just saying it's a small little niche with not so many people in it doesn't mean the competition isn't incredibly stiff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which also means the training load probably isn't light. Yeah, I think you never know until you try. So Mm -hmm. I went in probably a little cockier than reality proved to be true. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I've ski raced before. I'm an athlete. How hard can it be? Or Mm -hmm. I knew it would be hard, but I thought like my years and years of knowledge in the sport would cross over. Um, I also knew it was going to be hard because every amputee, most amputees that are above the knee in ski racing, Right now in the Paralympics, they don't ski with a prosthetic leg. So they all ski. It's called tri-skiing where they have one ski and then poles. Mm -hmm. Um, 
ski poles with skis on the bottom. But I did not want to do that. This is back to even cycling. Like for me, I just don't like doing anything on one leg. It just exhausts my one leg. And uh, Mike Schultz, he's a Paralympic snowboarder. He built this really cool... It actually uses Fox shocks, like in the mountain bike. Oh, no way. He built a prosthetic leg, which uses shocks as your knee. You have two different shocks in there, and it's suspended in a metal frame. And that's, and it's any, any extreme sport amputee is on his equipment, because there wasn't anything in the market mm-hmm. um, that could let you do something where you can aggressively put force into a knee and receive it back. Yeah. So I knew I had his leg, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to ski, and I'm going to do it the way nobody has ever done it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm noticing a theme. Yeah. Yeah, And then I get there, I'm like, oh, actually, this is really crappy. Actually, this is really hard. This is why people don't do it this way. (laughs) And I still believe in that and think it's going to get there. It just, I learned that I couldn't do it part-time. So I couldn't do it while still being in the Air Force that quickly. What was that first day on skis like? So since the thing is, I had actually been skiing since 2015. So even though I hadn't been racing, I -hmm. had, you know, even from when I first lost my leg, when I went home for Christmas that year, I was like, all right, guys, we got to figure out skiing. The first time I tried, it was absolutely terrible. It was on a powder day in Alpine Meadows in Tahoe. And it was so tough. Again, maybe I was a little too cocky. I thought, how hard can it be? (laughs) And it was terribly hard. And I actually had my brother, the pro skier, he gave me a ride on his back. <laughs> I got a piggyback ride. Oh. So I was like, Dave, I can't do it. It's too hard. And so he gave me a piggyback ride to the bottom. <laughs> so we've come a long way. Yeah. And, you know, at first it was really just being able to ski again, which was really, really tough. And also frustrating when you know how to ski and your body knows how to ski. And then you have this crazy prosthetic leg that just won't respond how you want it to. Um, to the point like last year where I was getting back in gates again. So that's been a huge process to improve that much. Is this something that is still, still on the radar for future years? Or I don't kinda... think so. Mm. So I said, you know, I'm older now, so maybe a little wiser than my younger years. But even when I was coming back this last year, trying Paralympic skiing in my mind, I thought, okay, there's three things either it won't be as fun anymore. Like I won't, I just won't enjoy it because mm-hmm. it's different. Everything is different as amputee. And maybe I just won't enjoy it. Um, maybe I won't be good enough at it. Or the third thing is like, maybe this is going to be really hard on my sound side, my good knee. And I still want to like be able to pick up my kids someday and continue hiking. And yeah, if I have to give up my health and like have, you know, if it's too much on my, the rest of my body, it's not worth it. Yeah. Which, you know, younger me would not have said that. And so that's kind of, I went in last year, even before I joined the team at all, like any one of these three things could not be good enough, not enjoy it. And it could be hard on my sound side and it won't be worth it. And then it it was pretty much a combination of all three, like didn't enjoy it. (laughs) I got scared of the courses. I've never been scared of courses in my life. Like I was never like saw a course and didn't and was scared of it. Yeah. But the way that it would just jostle you around with one leg, with my prosthetic leg, it just wasn't fun. And then hard on my sound side and not good enough. So it was like all three. I was like, okay, here we, cool. That answers that. Yeah. Mm. What, What event was that primarily? So we were doing, I actually did all of them, slalom, giant slalom, 
and uh, super giant slalom. We didn't do downhill last year. Um, I was in college. I was best at slalom, which is the shortest turns, which is actually the hardest as amputee. Mm. You mentioned a, a few different ranges of competitions that you've been a part of. Uh, we talked about the Warrior Games a little bit, and you mentioned Invictus Games. It, what is Invictus Games? I saw just brief blurbs on it. So Invictus is basically the international version of Warrior Games. So it's really cool. Warrior Games is the, all the military services. So Air Force, Army, Navy, Merchant Marine, they all um, like send people who are wounded warriors and compete against each other. And then the cool thing about Invictus Games is Prince Harry actually came to a U.S. Warrior Games and saw, because we invited the Brits over. And they loved it. And he came with the team one year. And then he just saw how amazing it was for them, for their spirits, getting them back in competition, making them a part of a team again. All these things that military members, you know, you don't, you miss it once it's gone. Mm -hmm. And so he was the one that said, we got to do this on an international level. And so he started Invictus Games. And ever since then, it's the same thing, but it's um, country to country. Oh, wow. So the U.S. and all our allies, the last time I competed was in Canada in 2017. We had 500 athletes, 13 countries. Wow. Yeah, I was like, I had this one really cool moment where it was after the cycling race and I did way too many events because I was like, oh, I'll just do them all. I don't know what I'm good at. <laughs> Typical. And so me and him, this other, it was a uh, British and he was a special forces officer also above the amputee, had lost his leg in, like, a crazy mission in Iraq in the early, like, 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. like, total badass. But here we are. We both just, like, competed cycling. We're limping. We have the same leg, and we're just, like, walking back to our room, and we're like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's just, like, so cool to meet people like that and talk and be like, wow, our life stories are so different, but we're, right now, we're in the same spot. Yeah. And mm. it sounds like you have taken these experiences and tried to find ways to help other people who have not been in as fortunate circumstances. And I'd, I'd love to bring up the foundation that you started. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, One Leg Up on Life. Yep. Is that right? One Leg Up on Life. Yeah. So we have another part, cool part of the story. And again, I think sometimes people hear like my story and the things I've done and they're like, oh, that's kind of an awe, but I never really asked for any of it and never, I think I just got really blessed in a lot of ways, like good timing with the coach and warrior games, like a lot of stuff, like I wasn't seeking this stuff out. I wasn't trying to do these things. They just sort of happened. And then we just ran with them. Okay, this is next. This is next. Okay. I want to get back to flying, but now I found out about these warrior sports. I'm going to do them. So One Leg Up on Life was very similar. So I told you guys some stories about my family liaison officer, George, my friend mm -hmm. who was put on military orders. Well, when I was first in the hospital, my sister and George were getting so many phone calls and texts and messages. They just couldn't keep up with it. Like their phones were just insane. And so George got annoyed with it. He's like, that's it. I'm just going to make a blog and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to update the blog. And so he, he comes back like the next day. He's like, guys, I came up with this great name, One Leg Up on Life. And that's what he named the blog. He's like all proud of it. And we're like, okay, cool, George. Like, sweet. Like, yeah. none of us think anything of it. Like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So we started just like George and my sister updating the blog. I'd update it sometimes. People would come visit and we'd say, hey, can you like talk about your experience visiting me? Write a post. So the next thing we know, we had thousands of followers. 
like everyone I'd ever met in the Air Force played sports with back in my hometown. And then just like add, like if you think about like every one of your friends, but then like their parents and their mom's church group and like it just spreads really quick. And next thing we know, we had thousands and thousands of people reading my blog, One Leg Up on Life. And, you know, we never expected that. And so that's kind of when we first realized like, hey, we have a pretty big following. We have a lot of support and we should do something with it. So my sister um, and I and Tim, who was with me when I lost my leg, uh, he said, hey, I, th- I think we should start a nonprofit. And I think our first event should be a paddleboard race at the end of the summer in the place where you were hit. So it was Whoa. so cool. It was so cool because to me, that was so symbolic of like, okay, here's what I was doing paddleboarding. Mm-hmm. Here's even the location that I was doing it. And at the end of the summer, you know, only a couple of months had passed. Like, let's start a nonprofit and let's like have our first event doing this and just turn this whole thing uh, into good. And so it was really cool. And we did that. <laughs> it was really hard. And I'm in the hospital researching 501c3s and how to start a nonprofit. But again, just people would help us, would hear we were doing it and, and help us form things. And everything just kept falling into place, almost the point of like, we know that this is what God wants us to do because anytime we'd hit a roadblock, like, oh, I don't know how to do this very complicated tax paperwork. And then one of my other C-130 friends, she's a like badass gunship pilot, comes in town to visit me. And we're talking about it over like margaritas, like, yeah, we're starting a nonprofit, <laughs> like on the river walk in San Antonio. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, my dad's a lawyer. He'll do it for you. <laughs> so just like stuff like this would happen to us. We're like, okay, I guess we're meant to do this. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we did it. We had our first event at the end of the summer in Florida. And the other really cool part about that story was because the accident was hit and run, um, there was a police investigation that went on for a very long time. And so most people in the area had heard about the girl who was on the paddleboard and got hit and they had probably been interviewed by the police because mm-hmm. they went to marinas, they were looking at boat propellers, they were pulling video footage from hotels and stuff. So everyone had heard about the girl, but most people didn't know me, didn't know my story, didn't know my mm-hmm. name. And so when we had that event, we wanted it before people would forget. And so then that day I got to meet so many people in the local community they're like, oh, we've been following your story. It's so good. To, so awesome to see how well you're doing and stuff. So that was really cool. Wow. And then our actual nonprofit. So my sister is how she ties in. She was in medical school at the time. And now she's a full-time surgeon. But she had done a lot of medical work in Haiti in the Dominican Republic. So once we were thinking about, hey, how do we start? Where, who do we help? And we're like, okay, obviously amputees because that's mm-hmm. what I am now. But... You know, we thought about, okay, military amputees, but they already have a lot of support. Okay, what about kids in the U.S.? Well, there's actually a lot of nonprofits that already do that, children, amputees in the U.S. And so then Jess was like, well, I know a lot of amputees that don't have any support, and that's in Haiti. And so we started it. We did our first trip in 2016, and we actually helped some kids that she knew. So she moved there for six months after the 2010 earthquake and so our first patients were her friend, her kids, which was really, really cool. Wow. Have you been able to partner with some organizations yet with help supply these prosthetics? So we, it's funny, actually, not any official, some official partnerships. We've partnered with two different hospitals 
in Haiti um, just to give us like lab space to set up a prosthetic lab. And then um, now we partner with some local uh, Haitian prosthetists that make legs, which is really cool because because of COVID. And then even before that, there was riots in 2019. So we were going twice a year, but then we haven't been in a couple of years because of all the stuff going on. But mm-hmm. luckily we have Haitian prosthetists so we can send them money and supplies and they've been taking care of our amputees this whole time, which is great. But mostly, yeah, we get, it's a word of mouth. I've had tons of amputees send me their boxes of old legs. Wow. Um, wow. And so, yeah, so we get supplies. We get a lot of supplies donated. We get money donated. And also being in Haiti, it's really cheap there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine it's really powerful because are, are a lot of these patients kids? A lot like, of them are kids, yeah. And as they're growing, they're going to need adjustments and how yeah, to shift Yeah, they outgrow their legs or... Like, especially right after the 2010 earthquake, there was a lot of international support and a lot of prosthetists went down and helped. But the thing is, so 2015, when I first lost my leg, now it had been five years. So say you had a 10-year-old kid who lost his leg, who was given a prosthetic leg right after the earthquake. Well, now it's been five years. He's mm-hmm. That leg is way too short for him now. He's probably, if he had any hydraulics in his knee, it's completely gone. The hydraulics are gone, like leaked yeah. out. So now he's walking on a hinge. So you go down there and you're like, okay, you're walking on that. Let's get you something better. <laughs> oh. That's oh. really cool. You, you've certainly been through quite the turmoil. And your, your attitude and perspective through all of this has been, I mean, just me hearing some of your story as we've gotten to know you a little bit <laughs> has been amazing. Some wine. Over some wine, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I just, I love how inspiring you've been able to be um, to us and so many other people thank you in your world Uh, yeah yeah i would say it's not easy and it doesn't ever end as an amputee but i think a lot of people can relate to that like there's probably so many more people than you ever realize in chronic pain or um health conditions that are fighting through it or you know tough jobs like people can really relate to that um So I guess for me, I always try, like with my story, don't focus on like all the things I've done. You can, but also like I'm still just a person. So I still struggle. I have one one story of like doing this crazy flight, a C-130 and like it was a check ride or something, you know, engine out, like I was telling you, one of the hardest things I do. And so I did that and I finished the flight and passed it. And then I'm walking to my car and I like tripped because I trip all the time. And then that was it. Like, that's a straw that broke the camel's back. Like, <laughs> burst into tears. I'm like, my life sucks. It's, it's like so funny. Cause it's like, okay, don't give me too much credit. Like, I'm still just a human too. And like so you, you've just done the impossible thing yeah. over here. And then, like, and then you tripping, tripped on the way to the and car. And tripping is like, yeah. ah, I can't do it. This is it. Life's <laughs> over. <laughs> like, <laughs> I cannot take one more thing. If people are interested in donating or getting involved, where can they find out more about the foundation? Yeah, so it's just onelegupunlife.org. It's all spelled out. Um, and they can donate. We are always willing to take people on trips with us, especially physical therapists, um, occupational therapists, prosthetists are always very needed. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we love to bring people with us, hopefully once international travel sort of opens up again. But um, our 
they're still doing stuff down there with our Haitian prostitutes. So of course, donating is good too. Yeah. Mm. Well, you've dropped so much wisdom in this and in, invaluable perspective. Like, I, <laughs> I feel like we could just, yeah, cut it there. <laughs> but I, I do want to ask, is there anything specific that these experiences in life have, have taught you about who you are and how you relate to others? I think, so I had a very interesting, one of, one of the first nights I was in the hospital, I think it was the second or third night, um, this, or the first night when I was actually in San Antonio and I had really bad pain, wouldn't go down, almost as bad as the first night when I lost my leg, it just spiked way up and it was just really tough. And I just remember, I remember telling this to my sister of like, man, I just feel like I'm being stripped to the very core of who I am while everyone watches. So like, here I am going through the worst pain imaginable and like everyone's watching me. And so it was so powerful. Like, okay, who am I? Like when it comes down to it, can I make it through this? Can I be better on the other side? And I had um, one of my friends in rehab, uh, Matt Melancon. He is a double below the knee amputee. And he had one quote that I think about all the time. Well, I try to think about. But he said, um, don't for one second long for what you were, but recklessly pursue what you can become. And so I had to write that everywhere because it's so easy. Like the second anything gets hard, I just want my leg back. And honestly, not even my leg back, just my knee. <laughs> I just have such knee envy. Like, I don't even need my leg. Just give me my knee back. <laughs> So, but for him, like that quote just means so much to me because like, don't long for that. It's not coming back. And so, and then not only like be better, but recklessly pursue, like, what can you become through this? And so I try to think about that. I'm not always good at it. Honestly, sometimes it's really good for me to do podcasts like this because I get back in my daily, like, uh, command life is stressful. I'm flying again. Oh, I got a blister from that bike ride I did the other day on my leg. Oh, I had phantom itch last night. <laughs> so it's easy for me even to forget like, oh, how far have I really come? Oh, how happy am I to be alive? So sometimes it's good for me to remember that too. Not always great at it. Well, thank you so much for your willingness to share the story for, I mean, just you being you, for the attitude that you have brought to this and for that, I mean, even what we can see from out here, the amount of that reckless abandon that you have used and fought for in everything that has become a part of your life since 2015. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks guys. Yeah. It was yeah. fun. It's such a pleasure having you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just a scooter right away. As you know, though, I'll be over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Definitely. Thanks so much. Yeah. If you want to know more about stand up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S U P A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>